0: Are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schabrat. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. All right. Really excited to have you on Impact Hustlers today. And I think what you've done with Kickstarter a few years ago when you founded Kickstarter in 2005, but throughout that journey as well, as well as what you're doing now with um, the Bento Society and spreading the word around Bentoism is really so related to what initially drove me to start Impact Hustlers and tell the stories of entrepreneurs that don't just focus on the short term, but also on the long term. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today. And thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for reaching out. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks very much. Uh, I want to start with your entrepreneurial journey. And I want to start giving people the context around your journey. Uh, You started your career actually as a music critic, as a journalist. And eventually in 2005, you launched Kickstarter. Um, If you take us back to that time. Actually, at the time, I don't think the term crowdfunding was a thing, really. And what was the driving force for you to leave your old career behind and start Kickstarter at the time?
1: Um, Yeah, like you said, my job for the first, say, 10 years of my career was as a music critic, writing for Pitchfork and Spin and The Village Voice, and had no aspiration to be entrepreneurial. I started magazines. I I started a record label. I didn't think of those things as being entrepreneurial. I was just doing stuff that was fun. But then in 2005, uh, I made a new friend, a a guy named Perry Chen. And Perry had had the idea for crowdfunding basically three or so years before. And he'd been, you know, thinking about the idea, trying to, you know, trying to figure out what to do with it. it. It came for him from... Wanting to throw a concert and not being able to front the money to make it happen. And he had this sort of light bulb moment of what if what if I could ask people to pay for the show up front, but no one's credit cards would be charged if the show didn't sell out. And so that way he wouldn't have to make this decision, but it could collectively be made. So that that was the original idea. But that was, you know, that was like pets.com era internet. You know, that's that's right after the crash. It's a very, you know, to start a website then, you need to have like a closet of servers, you know, and a guy with a ponytail. And it was just, it's a a different internet. And so in in 2005, uh, he shared the idea with me after we met and we started working on it together and found another friend, Charles Adler, uh, about a year later. And, you know, for us, the motivation was... You know, we were very much thinking about creative projects and and what artists have to go through to make things. And we all kind of had that background. And for me to look at, say, someone like David Lynch, you know, like a very loved filmmaker, but like a cult filmmaker, you know, for him to make a movie, he has to take out like weird oil tycoons to dinner and you know try to get them to give them a hundred thousand dollars like this is the process for a less commercial artist to make something you're either already rich or you're sacrificing going into debt or you're just doing weird things to get people to give you money but of course you know as fans as fans we love david lynch like we love to support someone that we care about but in the world of this time there was no way for those two things to be connected and the reason why someone like David Lynch had such a hard time getting projects funded was because the system he was operating in was one that was focused on profit maximization. They were looking for projects that could be hits, that could be blockbusters, right? That's what a Hollywood studio wants. That is not David Lynch's motivation. That is not the motivation of his fans. And from the perspective of studios, or these larger systems, like, we're, our numbers are too small to matter, there aren't enough of us. Like they understand, sure, people like that, but there's not enough of you for it to be worth us turning our big machine to try to serve you. And so really the core idea behind Kickstarter was there should be a space where projects could be funded without any profit motive. And instead, just if people want them to happen, they can happen. And people could be motivated by Any million reasons why people are motivated to do something. They like the creator, they have a relationship, they're cute, you know, they think the tech is cool, their neighborhood needs this. None of those are profit oriented motivations. Those are all motivations that speak to human needs. In the economy, the creative economy that existed before Kickstarter and before where the internet has taken it, everything had to fit through this this little, you know, this little needle's eye of will this make me a lot of money or not? And so that produced a very limiting world. And so, you know, thinking about that was inspiring. Thinking about that isn't about being an entrepreneur. It's just about, well, man, this like really makes sense and we need this. And and so even in the way we set up Kickstarter, only being focused on creative projects, uh, really sort of becoming a PBC, saying we're not going to try to get as big as possible or any of that sort of stuff, know, it was all coming from that same original notion of like, this is an idea that needs to exist. It won't just exist with us. This makes too much sense. It's too useful. And so how do we create, you know, how do we, how do we put this idea into the world where it can work? It has a chance of flourishing. And also so that the company, as long as the public decides it has utility, you know, that it can continue to be its best version of itself. Um, these are all, you know, it all sort of came from just being motivated really by the problem and the problem being not the problem other people saw it was, you know, I worked in the music industry and back then, like, you know, the issue of the music industry was how are we going to monetize music? But no one was thinking about, well, how do people make music in the first place? Like that was a given, that was a given. It was a businessman's way of looking at the world. It wasn't an artist's way of looking at the world. And, um, and so just seeing it from that different lens opened up you know, billions of dollars of funding for projects that the powers that be don't see as being all that valuable.
0: Interesting. It's really this paradigm shift of if we want to create something in the world, either like where we were before it was like, you got to have a profitable business model, or you run a charity where you're kind of begging people for money, right? And then I think both with your product you prove people wrong that that's not the only two options. Like Kickstarter, I don't think is a, like it's not a charity collection. Like people are pledging towards products and they get actually some perks in, in return, but they also just believe in the mission. It's not kind of a charitable donation. It's something bigger than that, right? And on the other hand, the way you ran Kickstarter and you actually changed the legal structure as a public benefit corporation, I would love to dig into that a bit more, for kickstarter to be both a for-profit company but also be legally bound to a bunch of its values that uh, that you embraced why did you decide to do that at this point and why didn't you go down a different route you could have made kickstarter non-profit for example right uh, or stayed for-profit only
1: we never thought that a non-profit would create a fast and hungry organization you know i don't know many you know it's a hard thing to do i think as a as a nonprofit um and but it was important to do because i mean we were in it for a mission um but that mission didn't involve like uh the com- thinking of the company as a tool for enrichment of the people who made it it was thinking of like this is a company as a tool for you know things that we believe in and ultimately and not everything that we believe in but ultimately about um for the three of us, you know, we we did not identify as entrepreneurs and never and never were never a part of the scene, like kept our distance from those things. And and I always felt like, are we allowed to be entrepreneurs? Like well, you know, I just I would meet other CEOs, many of whom were became great friends, but just a very different way of looking at the world. And and you know, I, I think we always just wanted to really uh hold on to that and stay true to that. And And what it made us realize is that we are operating this business um, according to our values now, but if we are fortunate enough that this business is useful uh, for a long enough time that it still exists, say after we die or after we're no longer involved, as it's currently set up, we are just going to be relying on good people, quote unquote, being hired And we also know from our own experience that like being a good person actually doesn't mean you make a a righteous decision. Actually, it's it's quite difficult to make a good a good decision, a righteous decision in a hard moment, even as a good the best person will have a hard time doing that. And so how well is this really set up for long term success if we are reliant on that? And so that that ultimately leads to a few different thoughts. One is what are structures you can create that would try to support a certain ethos or ideas? And, and what are ways that you can really bind yourself to that for the, for the long term and, and not do the kind of thing where, you know, I look at a lot of like corporate giving programs as almost, it's them apologizing for how much money they make. It's them apologizing for how much they screw their employees by not paying them fair wages, you know, and, and it's whitewashing, it's whitewashing. And it's this after the fact stuff, you know, everyone else has gotten their take. And then it's like, Oh, here's a little bit for the park. As long as we can put our name on it you know, that's not real. That is, that is purely self-serving. And so really the, the idea should be, you put the public good and your own personal good side by side. Like you don't get to choose one and then the other. Actually, you wanna think about this like, you wanna make decisions that are, that are two keys going in a nuclear submarine, you know, to, to send off the launch codes. You know, you need that kind of dual confirmation that this fits the mission of the company, and that this fits what the company has laid out of what its impact on the world should be. And decisions that satisfy both of those criteria are going to be good choices for the organization long term, right? And and so, but doing this in a legal way, doing it really important, doing this in a public way where that public accountability is so important, you know, because you don't want to look bad. You don't want to you know, And, and so, so all of that was just about creating a structure that we thought put Kickstarter in a position to succeed long term, but also maybe started to carve out a path for other organizations. People, say like us, who didn't identify with the entrepreneurial zeitgeist, but still were like motivated people with a great idea. You know, and, and so how do those? Where how can those people see themselves in this world? Because you, actually, we we absolutely need people like those to run businesses, right? To to create ideas and creating a business is a very powerful way to to change things, to do things. It's exciting, it's fun. There's like there's not a moral conflict in starting a, in starting a business, but you know, for people that don't subscribe to all the dominant ideologies and who often are made to feel broken by the fact that they don't want the same rewards and desserts that everyone else seems to want, could we be, you know, a kind of a role model to just say, Hey, you know what you can actually, you can raise as little money as possible to get to profitability. You use your profitability. You, you embrace not going for hyper growth. You create structures that put you in a different category. And then you try to be a good actor, you know, an extraordinary actor. You're trying to set examples, you know, and, and for me being the CEO, as we became a PBC, um, how I thought about the job changed, you know, it's like, whereas our values maybe at times would be like guardrails you'd bump up against. Instead, it felt like actively a part of my day, every job, but what am I doing about for this? Not just like if someone emails me with a petition, let's sign it. It's more like, no, what are we doing about what are we doing about artist education artist resources is that like where, where is that on our roadmap right now and it doesn't simplify everything it does you know there, there's still all the complications values conflicts continue to come but on the on the big questions on like the fundamental questions about who you are what you care about and what's important it is a greatly clarifying sort of process and it lets you sort of say you know, anytime you as, a, as an entrepreneur can make one of those Uber decisions where you're like, in all situations we just do this. Those are those are great because getting into the case by case and should we do this, should we not do this takes a lot of energy. You have to do that a bit early on just to find what's right. But like becoming a PBC was a real clarifying event for the company inside, outside. Just here's who we are. It's a legal document. Hold us accountable to this. You know and Yeah, I believe in it very much.
0: How how does it work in practical ways, the model of the public benefit corporation? We had a bunch of founders on the podcast that uh, were certified B Corps. I I understand that's separate from the public benefit corporation. Uh, How did you make the decision for either or? And how does the public benefit corporation model actually work and practice as a CEO of a company like that? It's quite
1: confusing. Um, I believe that they have changed the law but originally the law was that all B corps must legally become PBCs and then I think very few did it because it's much more difficult so then I think they abandoned the rule but Kickstarter was both of those you know a B corp is a you know a, a verification of your processes you know do employees share in ownership things like that it's a uh, a recognition for a certain level of corporate practices that is good you know, it, kind of like the ESG movement where it's like it's trying to show things that matter. Is it ultimately showing what we think it shows? Unclear, right? For us, like a, the B Corp status sort of verifies that your processes are as they should be. Cool. Let's do that. But it actually doesn't say anything about how you should behave moving forward. You can get an ESG qualification by saying you have anti-corruption practices, but like, (laughs) what does that mean? You know, hard to say. So for us, the second step of becoming a public benefit corporation, like dictated future actions, wasn't just about what are our processes now, but it's about how should we behave? What is the, what is the promise we are making to the public, to our customers, everybody about who we are and what we're about. And so, you know, for us, that felt like the most important thing. When you can bind future actions, that is a sacrifice. And over and over, over and over, I found that sacrifice is a tremendous way to grow and to show the truth of who you are, um, you know, because like everyone is willing to like make a statement about, hey, here's what we... We love this. We're all about this. You know, We stand with this. But you never see anyone say, oh, we're going to shut down this part of our business because it's complicated or we're not going to do this anymore or we're going to prohibit ourselves from ever following this path that seems like it might be profitable. I mean, as soon as... Um, binding arbitration started appearing in terms of service. We immediately like had a meeting and said, we want to write in that. We will never do that. Like force arbitration for users is taking away their legal rights. This is wrong. It is absolutely in the benefit of companies, but we want to like be the first ones out saying that this is wrong and push against this. It's yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a mandate to, to act on a set of values. And so, you know, I think both have, both have value there's more brand recognition of the B Corp because there's a logo that people put on packages. Um, uh, but I think PBC is ultimately what matters in the long run. But, you know, my, my hope is that like the PBC model does like a reverse takeover of the C Corp model and that the notion of non-financial mission and financial mission being legally required to be of equal weight. I believe that that, that should be the norm. The goal is that's the norm. You know, the, the goal is C corps have to be like PBCs, you know, even a financial institutions. like, you know, long term, I'm certain that's where it will go. Um, it's just a matter of how long, how long it takes.
0: I think it's happening. Uh, and obviously at the forefront are the kind of startups and entrepreneurs and the ones that we have here on Impact Hustlers pioneering this model and people like yourself, um, but now I think that the bigger ones are embracing it as well, right? So it's, well, they're embracing they're
1: really it. You know, I think they're embracing it in the self-serving slogan ways. You know, what do we, like, I'm inspired by things like amalgamated bank, which is like a, a, a union, cre, banks of credit unions, you know, uh, ways of people pulling their money together to create different advantages or resources that they share. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, the, the challenge of the capitalist system is that these things are always going to be the cute underdogs facing off against this giant machine that is extremely well-tuned, but, uh, but we are in a real moment of, of rewiring on a lot of things and, and the climate is just going to force our hands the climate is going to make it unconscionable. For us to only optimize for financial value, instead we're going to have to operate within this new set of constraints. We maximize for financial value while also maximizing for removal of carbon, <laughs> removal of CO2 from the atmosphere, and so our dials are going to change, right? And our decisions are going to become a little more multi-layered and multifaceted. And every business that's worth a shit is already doing that anyway you know it it it's just the wall street people who say that's too hard or like we can't we can't do more than just optimize for shareholder price or you know our companies will will destroy themselves or something but that's it's just all just bullshit from rich people trying to protect what's theirs um and, and so you know i think i think this is the the winning argument and it's going to be out of necessity it's going to be out of necessity it's not going to be because we finally like Made the the closing courtroom case, you know, we made the final argument and the judge says it has been determined. Stakeholder capitalism is the way forward. No, it's going to be the only way we can survive. And we're going to get to it too late. But I'm still optimistic about, you know, humanity's ability to evolve, to roll with the punches, to figure things out.
0: Uh, Yes. And let's talk about uh, a useful model uh, that you actually publicized. So you left Kickstarter in 2017, took some time and you published a book in 2019. uh, This could be our future. And some of the things we just talked about, you actually outlined there in terms of kind of the shift of capitalism, or even just personal decision making um, from the short term focus on myself and what's good for me right now. Uh, or in the next few periods of time versus the long-term focus of my self-interest and also the interest of the people around me and the long-term interest of society, right? So it's been this framework of Bentoism that you uh, laid out in there. I'd love you to briefly give us a summary of what Bentuism actually is. I think on a high level, it's been really interesting to see how you give quite a useful model of um, shifting the focus from only the short-term interest of myself to the long-term interest of myself and society and the people around me. So I'd love you to summarize what Bentoism is and how it can help each of us listening to this, whether we're founders, leaders, or just individuals in the cog in the system somehow embrace this long-termism that we just argued for.
1: Well. You know, Bento is a mental model, uh, a framework. Um, it's an acronym for Beyond Near-Term Orientation. And really, the, the core thought is that most of us look at life from a short-term individualistic perspective. What do I want to need right now? And that's what we think of our self-interest as being. But in Bentoism, which is just a simple two-by-two uh, matrix, four boxes, that now me of what I want and need right now. That part of our self-interest is just one piece of the picture. That's the bottom left. There's also in the bottom right, future me. So thinking about the person that we want to become, you know, that person becomes real or not based on the choices we make each day. There's now us, our family, the friends, the people that we care on us, that, that, that we care about and care about us. And then finally there's future us in the top right. So thinking about ourselves in the future or the next generation, yeah you know, every decision we make leaves a footprint in all of these spaces but you know really most of us we spend most of our time thinking about now me and we have a hard time uh, considering these other dimensions so the bento is just a very just simple rudimentary simple framework of these four boxes that become a user interface for making decisions. When I make decisions, I run them through each of these boxes because I know what my values and goals are in each one of those. Like I've gone through a simple process to identify what is my future me want to be? What do I want to be when I grow up? And, And what's powerful about this is that it creates a simple like muscle memory where you'll just return to these like frames of thinking and it allows you to be opinionated. And when you know When you know what you want your future me or your future us to be, it becomes a goal that you work towards. The the path forward becomes much more clear. This, The origins of this for me were were being a CEO at Kickstarter. And my goal was always to create what I thought of as a post-permission organization where the mission is so clear, the strategy is so clear that everyone is empowered to act upon it. And I was always trying to iterate. How do how do I create that? And I, I I didn't really get to exactly where I wanted to. But but the bento is it. The bento is a simple compass that just says, here's what's important, and it allows you to make decisions where you're trying to solve for well, what solves what I need right now. Um, you know how do I how am I getting paid or feeling made being made to feel secure out of this? You know how does this work for the, the stakeholders in this? You know my customers or the people I, my employees or my co-founder, what do they think, you know, how does this fit with my longer term, who I want to be? And how does this fit with like the impact, you know, that I want to have on the world? And I've been using this to make every life decision for three years now. And it works tremendously. It works tremendously. And so now there's a a group called the Bento Society. That's a couple thousand people who use the Bento. There's a, a smaller membership community, about 150 folks who are doing you know courses and different things together with me, and it's just a it's just a very simple tool for making you more actively aware of what's important and how to how to fulfill it.
0: Got it. A lot of the people listening to this, maybe people thinking about launching companies that have a focus on social impact, or people at the early stages of their entrepreneurial career. And I'd love to focus a bit more on how uh, you could use this uh, Bento model uh, of thinking as an entrepreneur, right? Uh, Especially if you're, let's say, a venture-backed entrepreneur. I think obviously there's this paradigm of this rapid, massive growth uh, as quick as possible, driven by the kind of VC economics. And maybe... That model is not even the right model for entrepreneurs that want to optimize for impact as well I'd love to discuss that with you and what do you think about that uh, but like how how should impact driven entrepreneurs uh, think about this and can use this model especially if you're starting a company and you're kind of scared you may not be around anymore in a few months um, how can you optimize both for the long term while making also sure that you know like you create you don't forget about the short term as well right
1: Yeah, well, one of the big things I learned as an entrepreneur is that without a destination, you can't get anywhere. And where a lot of people get trapped and I get trapped too in my work is you get trapped in the the now me of grinding on what's in front of you, grinding on the inbox of the the incoming, whatever, whatever feels right there. And that work is only valuable if it's oriented towards a larger goal, like something that you are working towards, something that it can be incrementally contributing to. Otherwise, you're just you're just working. You're just digging a ditch, right? And so you have to have that grounding in both where am I trying to get? And you can choose your. You can use the bento to set whatever time horizon you want. Where do I want to be at the end of this quarter? And you go through a process of being clear what's important at the end of this quarter. And you just you use that to connect it to now. Me. You use that to connect it to what has to happen now. And and especially where this is helpful and even critical for early stage founders, is being able to communicate a vision, being able to communicate a coherent vision. Here's where we're trying to go. Here's how I can defend it. Here's the through line from now until there. Here are the people that are important to have to get there. And so really, like each of the four boxes in in bentoism.org, I have a whole guide just for how to do this as an organization. But it really surfaces those sort of core elements that you need to like really operate on a mission, to fulfill a mission, to to take a project from zero to something. You, you can't just do what's right in front of you. That will that will never work. That will never work. It it has to be connected to a larger goal. And so, you know, when when we were starting Kickstarter, I mean we went through myriad like, you know, reading God knows how many strategy books, all these things I try to figure out how do you how do you do this? You know, never done anything like it before. This to me is just surfacing what is most core and just and creating a language, a language where it's also, it's not just in your head, it's written down. And so it's something that you can talk about with someone else and you can have a shared conversation. The, the beauty that I find in using this is that when you have this way of thinking, say you're having a disagreement with an investor, they're saying, well, I think you should be doing this. You know, here's what you should be doing right now. And in that position, you might be a little defenseless. They gave you money. You're trying to make money. Like, what can you say? But if you have a clear picture of what's important, you would be able to answer and say, well, that's true right now. But in six months, our goal is to be at this point. And we believe that if we do this, this step, it won't look like much now, but six months, you know, and you can shift the context to show like, actually, this is what we're doing is quite coherent. Let me just let me just allow you to see, you know, how I see things. And again, when when we just default to what the world tells us, which is what matters is you, right the second, making money, accruing power and influence. Like, you trap yourself. You, you just confine yourself to these very limited options. Like, like a filmmaker trying to get, you know, $100 million from a movie studio, right? It's just, you're just like, oh, I have to fit through this tiny, tiny sieve to, to even fit in any way. You know, you're kind of fucked. You're kind of fucked at that point. And so what do you do instead? You just redefine the playing field. You know, any good negoti any good negotiation, what do you do in negotiation? You just shift the playing field. You just you just put new things on the table. You change the whole context. It gives you the power in the situation. And so to me, you have to have, you have to have that perspective of not just what you want as an entrepreneur, but what your customer wants. Not just what you should be doing right now, but what's important to be doing six months from now. Like you have to know those things. You you may be wrong, but you have to be opinionated or else you know, you're just, you're just fishing and, and, you know, but you want to be moving towards a destination. So I, I think whether it's the bento or, or some other method, this, this stuff is, is critical. And, and it's what separates, I think, to a large degree, you know, who can get through that grind. You know, if you have a great idea, great ideas can happen, but like grinding on an idea, making an idea, you know, transforming a rock into a diamond, it takes this kind of work.
0: That's a very useful insight. I'd love to go back actually to some of my motivation, why I launched Impact Hustlers actually the first time in 2017. And at the time I had spent a few years, uh, actually, even as a student, I was working part time as a charity fundraiser, working with charities. I worked and kind of Uh, met a lot of social entrepreneurs as well in the more traditional sense that were, let's say, more um, kind of local projects uh, with a very kind of good cause, but not necessarily scalable. And I think at the time I was like, oh, if the world can create like these massively split scaling companies of like Facebook and Airbnb and all these companies, why can't we create companies like that grow as fast but that have like a very very clear social impact purpose at the core of it and that can build a business model around the more impact i make the more profit i make and the more profit i make the more uh, impact i make right um and that's kind of was my dream. And I think it still is, but I am trying to challenge it as well, right? And it seems like at Kickstarter, you try to challenge that as well, right? Like you didn't go out there and were like, we got to grow as big as possible. You said, actually, slow growth, there's all these values we want to look at. Um, So I'd love your opinion on that. Like, what should be the paradigm for people? Should they kind of, should we try to achieve a state where profit and impact is really kind of Part of the same coin and not a trade-off anymore, or do you think it's gonna be a model where we have to balance, like the Bento type model, where like you have to balance between these different factors? It's not gonna be possible to achieve like radical profit while having a great impact. Well, I, I think there's two two. Categories. I mean,
1: one is I, like Kickstarter was optimizing for creative values. Maybe we weren't we weren't optimizing for financial value, but we were optimizing for other sorts of values. So, I, so I think one point is just which value you choose to optimize for is like more on the table. And what I think we're going to see more of is companies satisfying a financial need and maximizing another need. And, and so you'll see this, yeah, the satisfying and, and optimizing this mix. I, I, as a PBC, that's kind of where you get, but um where there will be the things you're saying, uh, where there will be maximum impact and maximum, you know, revenue will be tied is going to be climate. Climate is going to create massive companies, massive levels of impact. And, you know, and we'll do so in a way that will be purely a good or trying to be purely a good, probably not in every case, but in most cases, most cases. And, Absolutely, these are companies that have to achieve mass scale, right? Like I'm an investor in uh four, four climate-related startups. And you know, some of those people wanted to work with me because I'm like the indie entrepreneur guy. But one of my first things to them was you're you can't be an indie company. <laughs> you need to be like let's blitz scale, because the impact of this is just something that that is the appropriate strategy, you know. And so I do think in climate and things related to that, it is going to be uh, wealth and impact generating together. And I'm sure there will be some strange moral complications that come with that. But I think overall, I think that's a good thing. And, And I think that the level of impact and opportunity that exists in climate is ridiculous. You know, the ideas that I see are amazing. Like, you know, I alternate between extreme optimism and extreme pessimism uh, or pessimism. Um, so I do think it's possible, but you know, I think ultimately the real point that every company is going to arrive at is that it's not enough to be in it for your own financial gain. Ultimately, people won't give a shit about you. When all the record stores went under in the U.S., the first ones to close were the big chains because no one cared about the chains. The small record stores that served the community those survived. You know, not all of them, but some of them did because people gave a shit and so for any new business that's starting now it can't just be about money because you you make yourself vulnerable you make yourself vulnerable long term i hear from massive massive famous companies who say hey we have realized our brand has no meaning uh what can we do what should we do to build our rep you know and so really like every category is going to get crowded with a million players And so staking out your ground as the one who provides the service plus and whatever that plus is, why you exist, a community that's not served, a way you go about it, uh, other values you support. That is your business. That is your brand. Like that is how to succeed now. And you see it in every direct to consumer company. You see like everyone. It's those are table stakes now. You know, when we were doing this with Kickstarter 10 years ago, it was we were communists and now it is table stakes. So. I think that's the real lesson is that you have to pair those things for people to give a shit about you, for you to matter in the market long enough to make an impact. And if you don't do those things at the start, you're going to be trying to do them later if you happen to be successful. And it's a lot harder to do them later. So to me, this is going to be the most obvious stuff in the world, you know, and it's, it's starting to happen now. Five years from now, it's going to be everybody does it. Um, and there's going to be a question of how sincere these things are, but. It is way, the the way the wind is blowing.
0: I think you got definitely an audience with with the people that listen to this podcast that are kind of all up for that or already doing that. And uh, what I love as well, uh, you've wrote a book, but now uh, you have the Bento Society, where You actually group together these people and get them to be in a forum and learn with each other and kind of help each other out and be part of this movement. Uh, Tell us briefly about that and how people can be part of the Bento Society and actually make sure that they can be uh, part of this movement and implement it for their own lives and companies.
1: Yeah, the Bento Society is a collective project to explore the frontiers of what's valuable and in our self-interest. Has a 30 year mission to redefine our lens from short term individualism to this more bentoist perspective for that to be the new norm. And um, so we have weekly events. There's a weekly bento every Sunday where people set their weekly to do lists using the bento framework, which is super powerful. So there's like 50 of us there every Sunday doing that together. And then we have other kinds of events uh, during the week. We give grants every quarter to a $1,500 grant every quarter to projects that are aligned with our mission. The first of those is going to be announced soon. And then, you know, I'm using it as like a a research sort of institution, you know, a new kind of internet research institution trying to explore um, and promote these ideas. And the one thing I would say for your group is that later this year, I am going to create a group for entrepreneurs. So specifically folks who are Early stage or or leading a company, founders, um, and just teaching like a kind of a training for bentoist thinking. You know, how do you approach certain decisions? Uh, How do you use this as a tool? Because it's very much a tool, and so that's something that will be uh, coming. You know, probably early summer, Um, but that will be a chance for people to really get to know each other. Because for me, as a when I was a CEO, like to find other people who had the same job as me, who were thinking about the same things as me. I mean, I would almost cry and gratitude uh, of just finding those kinds of people. And so to create a community like that, where we can learn from each other and up our game, you know, that's, yeah, you know, that's what it's about. So the so Bento Society is, you know, it's a startup. It's my, it's my full-time project. It's a communal project. It's a, it, it's a PBC. It's not yet incorporated, but we'll be a PBC and, um, yeah. And, and just hoping to, to fight the good fight and creatively explore Uh, these areas and really empower people to make good decisions
0: great i've joined and i've signed up for the first bento session this sunday so i'm looking forward to that and uh, i'll link the link to uh, bentoism.org as well in the show notes for everybody to check out um one last question i have you mentioned the 30-year time frame with your vision with the bento society so uh, my question to you to close down this conversation is uh, how does the world look like in 30 years if you succeed with what you're trying to do with the better society
1: Uh, i think it's going to look like i mean we'll come to call it post-capitalism but really there will be a a, a much less focus on creating financial wealth and there's going to be a focus on using the financial wealth we have to To create the sort of society that we want. And and really what I see the big change as being is that other forms of value like loyalty or sustainability or knowledge generation or purpose are going to be things that we start to measure and identify and use as metrics and start to shift our systems to optimize for different kinds of values. And so someone the other day mentioned this example to me of you know, 100 years ago, like 80% of people worked on food production, worked on farms. Today, it's like 3% because food is no longer, it's not a bottleneck the way it used to be. Similarly, you know, maybe, maybe 60, 70 years from now, maybe it's like 10% of people, are their jobs actually involve making wealth as, as the core reason. And, and everyone else's jobs involve producing some other kind of good that is transferable for wealth that is, you know, uh, but that we we just no longer have all of our tools optimized for this one good that has brought us a lot of value, is useful. You know, I, I don't think we can look at the past 150 years of, you know, how capitalism is, has played out and say it has been, you know, it's, it's a mixed feelings, a lot of good things it's gotten us this far. But Yeah, the next step is going to be somewhere different. So it's just it's just a diminishing of financial value and an increase in other kinds of values, and that will just reorder our social relationships. It's going to reorder what it means to work. It's going to it's going to reorder how we provide value to each other. You know, it's something that we're exploring in the bento society, and we'll certainly be writing more about. And yeah, we'd love love for people to come be a part of it.
0: Great! That's a very amazing, optimistic uh, vision of the future that I love. So, uh, thanks very much, Yancy, Jans- uh, for uh, joining us now, and uh, thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impact hustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.